we are back once again for another Family Friday. I want to thank you for being here with me, and I have the good pastor David Reese here with me as well. Go tell your friends and your family to get in here. This is going to be a very, very, very good show. I have to remind you guys all the time. You forget. You can always engage with the show. I don't mind. I'm not hiding from you. Matter of fact, I feel bad for you that you have to talk to me. But that's why I bought Pastor David Reese. But there's one rule. One rule that I don't change. Even for the likes of you. I like you a little bit. That rule is this. You must share the show on all of your social media platforms if you're going to engage. It's the price of admission. No, I'm not Catholic, but I still charge. You know what I mean? I mean, I get it. So if you're on Spaces and you want to talk, love to talk to you. But I need to see inside of your timeline that you shared this show. If you're on YouTube, hello. James Hall, I see you. Good friend, James. He's got his own show, too. Not bad. What's up, bro, to you as well? But, James, I like you. But if you want to talk on the show, you're going to have to share it. And you guys right now inside of, uh, what they knew call it for the name X, <laughs> hit the share button. And oh, 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 I'm going to put a link that if you want to have video inside of the YouTubes and the Facebooks and stuff and you want to talk, I'm going to invite you in. But you better have shared the show. I have no problem. My finger, it's happy. Trigger finger. I'll hang up on you. I'll do you. I do it. <laughs> I'll do it in grace. But I'm going to hang up on you nonetheless. <laughs> so... Here's the deal. Let me get this link ready. I am... Uh, Family Friday is one of my favorite days. Okay, I'm putting the link right now inside of our social media platforms. Boom. If you're on Facebook, you're awesome, Chocolate. Wish you do more FLF... Uh, what is it? FE stuff. I don't know what FE is, but maybe I'm a little slow. Dreamer, I, you know what? I Just because you said that, I know what you're trying to do, Dreamer. You're trying to get in here and get on the show without actually having uh, to share it. Thanks for saying I'm awesome. That's very kind of you, but you can't get in either just because you say that. But uh, I really do like you a little more. I might give you 10 more seconds to talk. <laughs> oh, flat earth. <laughs> Not happening. All right. Uh, so the link is officially inside of YouTube and on Facebook. If you want to come on and talk to me and Dr. Reese, uh, I just said doctor. He might as well be a doctor. He's a doctor of wisdom. I'm going to give him his own doctorate. Um, and I'm going to share it right now inside of X. So give me two seconds here. It is on my Twitter feed. Oh. Oh. Did I do it right? Yes, I did. All right. So if you want to enjoy the conversation with us and ask um, the good bishop some questions, go to my Twitter feed. And you'll be able to see the link for video. Or you can just, if you're in X and you're listening to the spaces, you can just go right there in the spaces. And uh, I'll let you in and talk through spaces too. So we, we're on all platforms. There we go. I just shared it. Um, 
Ellie, the assistant, she's here, so she'll probably take it and drop that link inside of our conversation. First things first, I got to talk about my lovely sponsors. I love my sponsor. I don't have one right now, and I'm happy for the sponsor. It's an 18-year-old young lady. The name of the company is New Heart Treasures. She is absolutely awesome. She's done the work, man. I'm so grateful for her. Um, she's done hard work, saved up her money, got the capital, and has started her own company. You can't even get adults to think the way that she's thinking right now. And she's figured out a way to be blessing to people. She's been a blessing to me. Can I tell you how awesome it is to be able to drink out of a nice mug? It makes me feel better. You ever, like, want to drink something just because the mug is so nice? This is that mug. Yep, makes the drink taste better. Sure does. So go over to newhearttreasures.com, newhearttreasures.com. Buy something from her, not just to be nice, because she has good stuff. And we want to support the people that support the kind of things that we want to see done. She supports me and what we do here um, on Knox Unleashed. And so support her. And that's how this thing, we bless each other. You see how that works? We start blessing each other. All right. So without any further ado, my friend, the good pastor, David Reese, thank you, sir, for joining me once again. I'm glad you're not bored. Brother, it's good to see you. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be able to talk further about the covenantal institutions and all the stuff that we've been going through as it relates to national covenanting. Yeah, so we've we've so far we've had what three of this will be number three or four. This will be oh, sorry, four. four. We're forty four. We're we're in part forty four right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wish we, I wish we were that for, for far along. But <laughs> but the first time we talked, we just really talked about the concept and idea of of civic covenanting, right? Right. And and, and then it started to become very evident to me that. Man, civic covenanting really just seems like the structure and the way that God's made the world to work anyhow is basic covenanting, self-government, uh, uh, family government, uh, the, the church government, and then the civil government. Absolutely. And I think those, those four covenant institutions, God has designed us to be working creatures, and then he has designed us to do the work and the preservation work, the keeping— as prophet, priest, kings in those four zones. So he's giving us sort of the refocusing points mm. so we know where to do the work, right? There's the work itself, and there's the locus of the work. Where where do we focus it? And so we have the individual, the household, church, state. And, and when we define those institutions rightly, it helps us to know what to do and where to give our focus. So, you know, this conversation is huge right now. A lot of it is because of, um, I think— I could be wrong about this, but I think the the kind of the anonymous for a long time have been easy to push out of the conversation. They've just not given the anonymous any stage whatsoever. They have almost intentionally not given any post millennialists any stage. They don't want to talk to them. They just they don't have to either. And when I say they, I mean most of the people inside of the Reformed Baptist world, right? They just don't they don't have to. They don't have to engage them. Um, I think the only reason that James White is in the conversation at this point is because. He got caught up while he was in the middle of it, <laughs> right? James was not necessarily publicly um, post-millennial or theonomic, although I think when I look at him his, from a long time ago, I think he's technically has been. It just hasn't been something he's professed publicly. And so James kind of got wrapped up in the whole conversation, so you kind of have to deal with him. But for the most part, people haven't had to deal with these conversations until I think COVID happened. When COVID happened— Everybody had to figure out what in the world do we do with the state? 
what do we do with the state? And the theonomists and the uh, Christian nationalists um, have become very central to the conversation because people are trying, I think, protecting their particular base of and world through worldview and thought, particularly in the Baptist world, particularly in the Baptist world, because you won't find a lot of Baptist theology that has a political worldview, political theology. And so sure. instead of laying out, which I think a lot of the for years have asked, instead of them laying out their particular doctrine on the state, they've only said what it's not. Right. right. They've, they've only said what it's not. And so I just want to preface this conversation kind of why this is important because when i was at g3 owen gave a talk against christian nationalism and i don't want to hash out that particular talk owen strand i don't want to hash out that talk i think christian nationals for themselves can answer i think the first 30 40 minutes of owen's conversation but there was a unique point in that 30 uh, at the 33 minute mark that really um told me finally what it is his position was so I know how he feels about theonomy and Christian nationalism, but I've wanted to know what is his position in this world. And, and this is where he lays it out. Okay. So David, you don't have to engage this. This is really a setup for the conversation we're about to have about pastors or the church and the officers and their wives. But I want to know how much pressure I can put you under before you decide to pop yeah. <laughs> right before you talk about, Officers of the church and their wives. And so this this is just, you just tell me to stop when you kind of have reached your limit and you want to express some thoughts here. In this world, we stand for what is good and we resist what is evil. We do that, that's a real hard line to take. <laughs> we, I think we got, what do we get, a couple of seconds in? Yeah, we got six seconds in. I, was, I, I knew to stop it there because that's as far as I could go. Oh, about, tell me, tell me more. <laughs> we stand for what is good, and we reject what is evil. Amen. I, I've said stuff like that from the pulpit. I mean, like you know, and sometimes the setup of the platitude is is useful to to draw a line, and then you're going to explain it. So let's see uh, what he says is good and what he says is evil. Uh, Otherwise, uh, it's a meaningless platitude, right? Uh, well, then you, you just it's a meaningless platitude because he doesn't define what is good and what is evil. Well, let's give the man. Let's give the man a chance. Let's oh, see what he says. Okay, I'll shut up. You don't have to embrace, and we should not embrace unlimited immigration in our countries. Immigration is a prudential matter. We should handle it prudentially. You, you still good? Uh, okay. Oh no. Okay. Okay. I'll well, keep. I, 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 I mean. I mean. <laughs> prudential, right? Whenever anybody says this is a matter of wisdom or a matter of being prudential or whatever, like hold on to your wallet. Uh, because the issue is, it's like, what do you mean here? Are you about to say that there's nothing that the law of God says to give us principles that we have to deal with? And we just can like, it's a sliding scale that we get to pick how much. I mean, there's a... So immigrate. Like, well, I'm still waiting on what's good, what's evil. Well, I mean, like immigration, right? It's like, does the law of God tell us how we're supposed to handle immigration. Only, yeah. Well, only only Israel. It's not in the New Testament how we handle immigration, David. Right, and there are no principles that can be applied to other nations. God's God's law for Israel was stupid and it's, you know, therefore it shouldn't be applied to any other nations because only an idiot would give the principles that God gave 
to Israel, right? I mean, like, <laughs> this is this is like this is like this is the basic argument, right? It's like it's like, oh well, we shouldn't read what God did there. We should just make it up. David, I want you to think about this for a second. I'm trying to get this guy to come on the show and talk to me. If you say things like that, I he's mean, not gonna feel welcomed. Well, sorry, what I meant to say was interesting. Tell me more. So it is wrong for the left in America and throughout the West to try to radically alter different countries. That is not a good thing. I Says who? Why not? Why not? Standard. Yeah. Why is immigration to radically alter a nation a bad thing? Says who? What New Testament verse are you going to use to define that, that that's wrong? I offer no support for that in terms of massive overhaul of a given population. Globalism is a scourge. Go ahead. Do you want to take this one or do you want me to take it? I mean, if you got any thoughts on globalism, I've never heard of globalism. (laughs) 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 This is too, this is, I, 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 I want to know how you define globalism from text and why it's a scourge. So what, what, where, how do you mark off borders? How do you mark off um, what is globalism and how you define it? Uh, and then what does the Bible tell you to do about it? I, 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 I'm really interested to know, Owen, how, how you understand globalism to be bad from the scripture text. You know, and this is why this is so good and why we need these conversations. I think I, we need to figure out, we got to figure out how not to talk past each other. And this is one right. of the first few times that I w- am able to see, oh, this is what they stand for, and this is what they mean by what they say. And he's not defining even that part good, but at least I know what he stands for. Go ahead, David. Right. No, I mean, so you got, you know, when he's talking about these things, I mean, this sounds more like Republican talking points than it does any sort of like biblical thing, right? And that's what you end up with when you have, you have sort of like American constitutional um, Republican talking points is what you get out of somebody who's not going to say the Bible teach. If you don't think the Bible teaches you a political philosophy, it doesn't teach you a political theology. It doesn't say to you what the state should and should not do. Right when you when you end up with that, you're gonna you're gonna end up with a bunch of platitudinous talking points. You're gonna appeal to the world. You're gonna have some sort of a a common sense whatever that is sort of your 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 go to place here. And so you know. He, let's see what else he has to say on this, but but globalism, right? You're going to have to go back to the Tower of Babel, and you're going to have to go back to empires, right? That's the problem with globalism. It's because somebody somewhere is the emperor. Mm. You're going to have some. You're going to have some central authority, and you're going to have a bunch of people with different languages being controlled by a centralized authority. There's no way they want to stay inside of that, and so you're going to have to suppress secession. Yeah. That's the principal problem: is you destroy liberty and you have an imperial methodology, a conquest government. And that's the problem because a free people will not tolerate being governed by foreign powers that are going to impose upon them rules that they don't participate in. And so they've increased consolidation of power, but individual liberty has to be defined by the law of God, or you're just going to be making up what you think liberties are. Let's just talk about liberty, shall we? Nonetheless, We do need to stand, I would argue, for certain ideals today. I believe in religious liberty. I do not believe in the forceful suppression of blasphemers in the New Covenant era. I recognize that Caesar is supposed to have rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
there is in some form a neutral space created by the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, who knows about his own divine authority, I assure you, religious liberty is a tremendous blessing. So, so yeah, yeah, first, yeah, go ahead. so first of all, I don't, and the fact that he doesn't believe in the new covenant era in suppressing blasphemy. So, I mean, frankly, America suppressed blasphemy with fines and other things all throughout the country until relatively recent history. So even the United States had that. But the idea that, you know, there's something here, there's some, there's some good thing in the new covenant era. In the old covenant era, it was bad for people to commit blasphemy, and not only bad, but criminally bad. And in the new covenant era, okay, it's still bad, but... Caesar's job is to preserve a neutral space. And, you know, we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, when Jesus said that, was it the new covenant or the old covenant? Oh, oh, oh. I didn't even think about that one, David. I mean, so Jesus is in the old covenant. He's instituting the new covenant. And so this argument, for this argument to hold, like people take the examples of Jesus and stuff and they go, oh, well, we shouldn't do that now. It's like, Jesus was operating under the old covenant law. The issue is that he didn't have the civil power. And he was not the one who was exercising that power at the time in terms of a civil office. His enthronement is at his ascension. And he is the king of kings in his divinity at all times and in his humanity he has a time when he takes on different elements of power, elements of authority. And when he is there, he is sent to die. He has a special mission that is distinctive. He was sent to die, so he doesn't defend himself. Is it just for a man to defend himself against wrongful arrest by people operating under the color of law, pretending to be lawfully operating? Absolutely! Absolutely. So did Jesus have a right to defend himself against wrongful arrest? Absolutely. And the reason he didn't was because he came to die. So, you know, this is not careful exegesis. This is not careful reading. The idea that give to Caesar the things that are Caesar means therefore there's no blasphemy laws is the dumbest exegesis I've heard this week. And I hear a lot of dumb exegesis. And so if we think about that and we say Caesar has been given this like idea of the neutral zone like like this is not star trek like there's there's not some neutral zone this is every area is christ's there is not this neutral zone for speech we are to see all the nations discipled under the law word of god and to see them enact the law word to punish criminal behavior and we have no way of knowing what behaviors are criminal apart from the law of god you know, uh, David, first of all, that was fantastic. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about, I don't even want to say anything really, because I think it's like you kind of wrapped it all up in that. And I think that just that, that we can almost end it there unless you just want to be a, a tortured a little more. But I just have to say this. There is um, I've come to the position now in some of this conversation when I hear things like this is that I am at the point where I want these guys to start arguing for some form of idolatry in the state. I'm not arguing if we should have it or not. I want them to start arguing for it. 
So I want them to tell me that they believe that Muslims should have the call to prayer in the public square. That's what I want to hear from them. I want to hear them defend the idea that mosques should play from their speakers like church bells do to act as if there's no difference as public squares and mosques should have their call to prayer the same way that churches have their bells. I want them to defend that because as soon as they go to do that, they're carrying water for idols. And that makes it a lot easier for me to have this conversation. Because if you're going to sit up here and tell me that the, that the gospel of Jesus Christ should not be preferred from every government in the world, then I'm starting to look really odd at you <laughs> about if you're a friend or foe. You're going to tell me that you don't think a nation should prefer the gospel of Jesus Christ to the pagan call of Islam? You don't believe it. That's why I don't believe any Christian really can does believe in religious liberty. Not in that sense. They can't. Now, the state itself, and, and this is what I— uh, I'm sorry, I'm, being, I'm not being as articulate as you are about this, David. <laughs> but the state itself has a right to protect its interests. That's why we have this thing called, oh, what do they call Treason. It is a treasonous act to try and overthrow America. And if America has its allegiance, as it should, to the Lord Jesus Christ, to allow something else to come in and try and uproot it, that allegiance of its own citizens and overthrow its government, which Islam is intending to do in everything that it does, it does not get to operate in a public way, right? That is, that was, that's so—if you read your Old Testament words, you would know how this should function. You don't get to have idolatry run rampant. Matter of fact, as Christians— the high places all get torn down, right? Absolutely, you yes. You don't have idolatry running rampant in your nation. And this kind of talk, without really defining what he means by religious liberty, leaves it open to say, you know what? You're fine carrying water for idols and making sure that they get the same amount of attention in the public sphere as something like the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not something that I'm, I, I, I can really agree with, you know? And so, and go ahead, David. No, just, well, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think one of the problems here is I don't think they have a coherent theory of law, um, especially when you run into guys that are confessional. I have no idea if he holds the London Baptist confession or anything else. I don't, I don't know what he's, what he's committed to doctrinally. But, um, you know, the thing is, you know, if you, if you claim to be confessional and you go, okay, I believe in the three categories of the law, and you've got the, the moral law and you have the civil law, and you have the ceremonial law. And if you believe that the general equity of the civil law continues, um, then what you're going to do is, you know, that's the only way you're going to be able to have a full orb view of what the state should do. And, and otherwise, you, you kind of end up just making up a bunch of things outside of the Bible that you want the government to do. Because the civil law is the only way you're going to have a, a, an outline of all the functions of government. And and so if you say that you believe in the general equity of the civil law and you say, well, tearing down idols, you know, suppressing blasphemy, punishing it, these things are not uh, to be done, you're going to go, okay, what made it so it's not a crime? What, you know, okay, so we all agree it's still a sin. Okay, great. So then when was the state told, stop punishing this? Or, or when was it Oh, this was peculiar to Israel. It's peculiar to Israel because only Israel is supposed to covenant with God. Only Israel is supposed to, you know, be uh, circumcised as a national body. No other nations are supposed to be 
covenanted. They're not supposed to be baptized. They're not supposed to be a, a people that are made distinctively Christian. You know, and so they just, what is the point of discontinuity? And they don't really have an answer. They're just going to, they're just going to be like, well, wave the wand of Old Testament. And the whole Old Testament, we just get to assume it doesn't continue unless it's convenient for me. And then I'll find a reason to justify it continuing in that place. And, and this is that this is the way that the Old Testament is treated. And so you find this especially in Baptist circles, but you're finding more and more Baptists that are becoming theonomic, post-millennial. Way more, way more. Right. Yeah. And they're thinking through these things. And, you know, that's why so many of them are going Presbyterian, because they're seeing the, the coherency of the continuation hermeneutic. And they're getting kicked uh, out of being—there's people telling them you can't be Baptist and post-millennial or theonomic. So then they, where do they go? Right. So, yeah, sorry. Okay. That, that's, no, no, that's all I got. There's so much. Okay, so I Paul Dix, he just—is uh, it Dirks? Paul Dirks. Uh I think that's right. He just popped in for a second. Paul, you got 30 seconds. How do I know you and where are you from and, and uh, what do you got to say? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, David. Um, so Deep Discipleship for Dark Days is, is a new book that I come that it's that I have coming out with so, Paul, uh, Ezra, Ezra Press. Are you here to just promote your book? No. Well, yeah. yeah. So I is am because I'm interested, in, I'm interested in theonomic uh, thinking and I'm interested in all that you guys are doing because of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm right in there with Ezra Press, Ezra Institute. So, so listen, yeah, I'm going to plug my book for a second, but, <laughs> but I'm also interested in this, uh, in this conversation as a Reformed Baptist um, and, and where there is covenantal continuity, uh, where, where Baptists can agree with Presbyterians on these issues. Um, and so I'm interested in this, uh, you know, in this larger debate as well as plug in the book um, with, uh, with Ezra Press. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, man. So you just, I thought you were here to ask a question or engage with another comment, but hey, man, just so you know, I just want everybody to know, we didn't stone Paul. Like, it's okay for Baptists to come in here and have this conversation. Where can people go buy your book from? Yeah, so it's uh, right now Ezra Press. Uh, it's available on pre-order. It should be out in the next couple of weeks. It will be on Amazon. And, so, uh, and absolutely. Whole, what's the whole purpose of the book? Yeah, the purpose is to help um, people navigate all the all the darkness coming into uh, into these days, whether it's from the government, whether it's from uh, from culture, attacks of the family, uh, a manual for what we do right now. Um, you know, whether it's practice pioneering, I know that's a big focus for you guys. Um, you know, building things that are going to last. Whether that's it's just, that's uh, just the creation mandate, my guy. But yeah, absolutely, it is. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Yeah. You, you bet it is. Yeah. All right. Uh, so yeah. All right, bro. Hey, thank you for joining us. And send me a copy of the book, and I'd love to have a proper interview with you. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm going to keep listening. All right. Thanks, bro. All right. So, David, I just I, the reason that I use that clip, because th that clip, I think, is, pro is problematic, yes, but it's why we need to have this conversation. There are foundational pieces to this conversation that I don't know a lot of people are having. We're having the kind of this top layer conversation of like, all right, we're, there's just going to be this flip that switch. And then all of a sudden the Christians get everything and they're going to burn everything down and destroy the whole thing. Right. Like that's that's kind of, and they're going to destroy America. And and I don't think that's actually the case at all. I think some of this conversation we're having, that'll be three, four hundred years. And a lot of the conversations, because we've forgotten the absolute basics of what covenanting really is, what really happens when we covenant with God, and, and, um, and how just the whole structures of, of life is designed. I, we were talking about this earlier, I, I'm, and David, you tell me if I'm wrong on this. So I, 
I want to get to the officers, the church, and their wives. We're going to get there and why that conversation is important to this one on civic covenanting. But when I look at, we just had the pre the business makers conference at the um, Ark Encounter for the last conference, the po uh, politics of six day creation. Congratulations, and by the way, on the conference going so well. I know you guys uh, had a really large group out there God and I heard that a lot of speaking went really well. So yes. great job pulling off a huge event. I wish you were there. That's just, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> I know you're, you know, you're, I know you're busy making money and doing dominion. So I'm mad at that. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I walked away with, I was more impressed by the business makers conference than I was anything else. And it was because one of the things that David Bonson said that who, he was David Bonson, Camden Spiller and um, Heather Wilson and Jacob Wells. The, those two are the owners of Gibson go. And one of the things that David said was that the intended purpose of man is to work. That is the, that is God made you to work. That's what it is. And when, it, for whatever reason that hit me a little different than it normally does and maybe it was being there with the ark and talking about six day creation because then, because I think people think that something radically different happened at the coming of Christ that changed the whole intent of Genesis. And now we're on a different trajectory than the intended purpose that we see in Genesis from the creation mandate itself. And so God made this kind of world that as you work it, it becomes glorified through your work and you give it back to him better than how he gave it to you. And, yes. And, and, and so if that's the case, and this is my question, if that's the case, post-millennialism and the idea of things progressing, having a, a teleos it, uh, to a good end, that is inherent in just the very way that God has made the world to operate. Yes, that's a great point. Okay, so yeah, so I, I think that's a that's a marvelous point, and I think if you if you think about the idea of God giving work to do, and granting commissions, right? He says, "Here's a dominion mandate or a dominion con commission," right? And then you have the great commission, and they're not the same, but they're related, mm. right? The the dominion mandate is a commandment to organize the physical world, to have culture that glorifies God, and then you have these this duty to see minds well ordered and all of that. And the great commission is this obligation to spread out the teaching element. So it's the specific work of the church, whereas the dominion mandate is the general work of the individual. Right. Mm. And so we have these missions. Did God give these missions with the intention of completing them? Right. And if he gave this work, you know, if the work is work that advances that commission, advances that mandate if there's progress is there a goal and if you don't have a goal if you don't have a goal there's no progress there's no meaning to the work mm. and so if we're made to work and we believe that the universe has purpose behind it the work itself is a part of fulfilling the purpose and if we're supposed to be people who glorify god by knowing and showing our work is about showing and the cumulative work of it, the, the cumulative result of that work, and we see this idea that we're given a garden, we're supposed to subdue the world and spread out the garden, and we're supposed to build up the garden to city. So you have garden cities, a city on a hill, and this idea that the garden, you know, by the way, the garden's on a hill. Mm. The garden has four rivers that go out from it, and I don't know about you, Benox, but like 
when I see water, it tends to run downhill. Is that what you see? <laughs> Typically. And so if you got rivers going four directions, you know, where is the garden? It's at the top of a hill or a mountain. And the rivers are flowing out in four directions because it's coming in some like, you know, well that's flowing up out of the middle there, just like this idea of the water going out. So this is the this is the mountain garden, the mountain temple, the mountain city. Yeah. And it's supposed to fill the earth. Mm. And that's the work. And, and so, David, with that, so th I just needed the amen to make me feel good. Um, but with that in mind, and if that's and if Christ has come to restore that reality, the second Adam, which is the reason why Paul uses that language, if that's come and been restored, then there is two things that we miss inside of the concept and idea of work. Um, we get one of them because we understand work cultivates the land, cultivates something, but we always miss the protection side. There's yeah. actually the guarding side. And the more, and what I got from this conference, the pre-conference was, oh, the, the, and Joe Rigney put this all together in his last part of the talk. God hands off creation to man to say, go do what I've done. Bring me back something better than what I've given you and guard it and cultivate it. Mm -hmm. And that was to creation. It wasn't just to like one section of it. It was creation, guard it. And that moves us into a whole new category of what Christians are responsible to do in the world to remind men that they have been restored through the blood of Jesus Christ, repent and obey the gospel and get to work doing those two things. And if that's the case, then we are the ones who remind people what is good and what is evil, how to engage with it, what is God's standard, so that we can protect the blessings that we are making sure others get to have and partake of, and so that we can say, God, we've guarded the world, we've protected the world, and now we've been cultivating the world. Here's what we've done with it. And somehow, the way that our eschatology and the modern eschatology has been thinking, we've taken away those things so Christians don't have to protect anymore. And we've lost that because we haven't really been working. When you work and you build something, you learn how to make sure it stays a blessing for other people. Yeah. You know, and we've removed the protecting side. We've removed the work side. Work now, David Bonson said this, work now is just kind of like um, a, a savings account to, to get you so you can get to the real stuff. It kept, it, you, it, <laughs> right? It's just the stuff you do to get to the real thing. And so instead of, no, it is the thing. It so is brother, the what thing. Do you what do you think with this whole protection thing, right? What, what do you think is the answer here to the fact that evangelicals now basically build a church and within a generation they've handed it over to liberals? This is just happening. Church after church, denomination after denomination. So if we want to build churches, local congregations and presbyteries and connect them, what's what's the guarding there? What's the keeping? Whose show is this? This ain't your. This, no, 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 no. You, you, you don't get to ask me the questions. That's the question for you. What's the answer? You're the pastor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to help everybody see that you are uh, too humble and you pretend like I have answers and you don't. But I, uh, I know when we're talk when we're talking on the side here, you have lots of good stuff to say. So okay. So yes. All right. Fine. Fine. Thank you. So I'll take the ball. Um, so I think the answer is. The, the the covenanting act, the act of swearing to uphold a standard, right? We we see the individual is covenanted with God. You you vow to do what God has commanded. That includes preserving what He's given, mm -hmm. the heritage that we receive. 
Um, new households, household is the mechanism by which inheritance is passed down from generation to generation, wealth and wisdom. And in the church, we are bound by the covenants that our forebears make. And that's why we baptize babies. You, you, you know, and, you got to work that one out a little bit, because I think that people in our modern era think I get here, I get to decide what I get to do and how I get to do it. Unfortunately, that is a very um, Arminian kind of understanding. As right. if, so walk out like we are bound to the covenants that our ancestors made, because that's a fifth commandment kind of thing going on. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so that idea, you could look back at Adam, right? Adam's in a covenant with God and the, you have signs of the covenant, the two trees and the obligation to obey passed on, not just to him and to his wife, but to all of his descendants and the blessings and cursings that exist in that covenant are given to him and to those whom he represents all of his posterity descending from him by ordinary generation is the shorter catechism language. And so this idea, you see this with, um, you see this also in terms of the covenant with Noah, there's a reference to his descendants and his seed. You see that in the promise given in Genesis three mm. with the giving of the gospel, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and there'll be a war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Right, so this idea that it relates to a succession across generations, and we see this with 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 Abraham and circumcision, and circumcision gives a visible sign for that succession. Then, but you know, going beyond that, you know, we see this obviously with Moses, and we and we, we see this with David. But but you have this interesting event in the time of Joshua, where there's these guys that deceive. Joshua, yeah. the Gibeonites, and they're supposed to be wiped out, but they get Joshua to covenant with them to not kill them or their kids. And for that to be true for not just Joshua, but Joshua and Israel and all their descendants. So 400 years later, now I don't know about you, but I think that's one, two, three. It's more than one generation. Yeah, later. a little bit more than one. Okay. All right. So Saul starts to kill the Gibeonites. King Saul, the King Saul just before King David, 400 years later. God brings a curse on Israel for breaking covenant, mm. referring back to the covenant between Joshua and the Gibeonites. So David removes the curse by repenting of the covenant breaking on behalf of Israel as their chief magistrate. And he goes and represents Israel to the Gibeonites, repents to them, and offers them various ways of trying to deal with the justice of the matter mm. in order to repent and to see that curse for covenant breaking removed. So the idea that covenants go across generations, that's one example right there. And that's true of the covenant of grace. It's true of the covenant of works. It's true of any covenant entered into that these are multi-generational matters. And, and so... When we look at the reformations that occur in the Old Testament, especially when you look at uh, Hezekiah and Josiah, they're reforming back to the covenant order of David. Mm. And they're repenting, and they're also reforming back to what was established with the Mosaic Covenant, and they're repenting. And, and then the idea is they restate these, these, these obligations. You get to the destruction of the temple, you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, they're reforming and recovenanting as well, and they're repenting to go back to that order. But the point is, 
when we form covenants, when we swear to do duties, those are binding upon future generations insofar as they are righteous. Mm. Man, that was really good. So then, so we've kind of, we've somewhat recapped. I'll do this really quickly, but self-government, family government, uh, church government, civil government, all real four governments, prophet, priest, and king is what the self is supposed to be, that what individuals are supposed to be doing, operating that way to take dominion. The way that they do that is through marriage, right? Uh, be fruitful, multiply, and then function as a prophet, priest, and king in the home. As they do that, there's qual- they create um, economy, would that say blessing for others as they're functioning that way? Is that, would, you, would you say it like that? Sure, yeah, and, and they're, they're functioning in their role and, they're and creating running, blessing and doing that work, yeah. Right, and then that also, so that then qualifies them, or, or not, to be uh, inside of the, another government, which would be the, the, the church. So we're going to talk about now the church officers and their wives. What is that, and why is it important to this conversation on civic covenanting? And so we look at each of those, right, the individual— there's the individual's relationship with God and covenant. Households are made by covenant. Mm. God defines the covenant, right? He defines that. He defines marriage. He defines the duties of parents. He defines the duties of masters and employees, or he defines all that. And so all those obligations are defined in those institutions. And we say the same thing with the church. It's always a grant of authority. God gives the dominion mandate to the individual. And that's a part of that covenantal order. God grants the authority of the husband over the wife, and he grants the authority of the parents over the children, and he grants the authority of employers over employees inside of the household. And so you see that order, and you see that restated over and over and over again in, in the New Testament epistles. When they're talking to households, it's always, you know, husbands do this thing, wives do this thing, children do this thing, masters and servants, right? And so you've got that, that whole thing in the household order. And well-run households are required for people to be fit for church office. Mm. And so that, uh, you know, and just to tie this back to this idea of covenant succession, the way you keep in the church, you write down the gains that have been made. Everybody wants to build. It's fun to build. You know, what's not fun is guarding, right? It's, you know, (laughs) it's Regarding, right? You know, you talk about you know what is what is it to be a soldier, right? It's to a soldier in times of warfare is to go through huge periods of boredom, <laughs> followed by small periods of punctuated terror, right? So it's just like boredom, terror, boredom, terror, right? That's what guarding is, mm. and so people don't like to guard, um, and so we should not be bored with guarding work and we should be able to build while we guard, right? We have a, a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Yeah. And so this ability to do both, but the way we guard is we learn what other, what our forebears in the faith had already figured out and we hold on to it and we don't let it go. Mm. And the way we do that is by putting together co- confessional documents directories of worship and forms of government and we prove them from scripture and we write them down and we swear to uphold them as far as they are scriptural and we don't swear to uphold them if we don't think they're scriptural 
And you go, well, that's a lot or whatever. It's like, I'll tell you what, if you have kids and they leave your house and you haven't taught them the confession that you believe, you've done a bad job. Mm, that's right. And so you better, across the time that you've got them, teach them the Bible and teach them the systematic arrangement of the content of the Bible that's been worked out. The words of the masters of assemblies are like well-driven nails. They help us to be in place and they make it so we don't have too much to read. Right? Reading, too, reading books is wearisome to the flesh. And this ability to pull together the words in an efficient way is what a confessional standard is largely about. Mm. And that's the stuff, that's the work, it's the gathering that's already been done. And if we reject it, we're rejecting the keeping work of preserving what's already been done. Fifth commandment violation, clearly. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Because right. this, this is what your forefathers has handed down to you. And the way that you honor them is by taking it and saying, thank you. Yes. Right. That's a great point. Absolutely. And, and saying thank you is then to obey what it is that they have made covenant with. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. And so that's part of what it means to to actually, you know, when we think about the fifth commandment, almost all of our problems currently in America right now really drill down to the first commandment and the fifth commandment. I really believe that. <laughs> like, we have no honor of God, and so therefore we don't honor our parents. And those of us who think we're yeah. trying to honor God, then we don't honor our forefathers who came before us with this tradition, right? And and we just, we, we that's part of what was horrible about the social justice movement is that it wanted you to forget the realities of what came before you. Anyway, right. you're on the tangent. I'm going to let you keep going. No, and, and, and so that whole thing, I mean, you know, the funny thing is you say, you know, men that have come before us have done bad things. Well, that's true. I mean, if you read the Bible, because like all the guys it talks about except for Jesus are pretty bad. <laughs> and so you, know, you read about like Abraham and it's like, yeah, and he handed over his wife to Pharaoh and was like, yeah, she's totally not my wife. It's just my sister. Don't worry about it. High fives. You know, and like, it's just like what man here is like, yeah, that right. guy. He yeah. did the thing there. Like, no, he, he needed to defend his wife. He had 318 catechized guys oh, that he wow. led onto a night ambush to go execute the armies of kings that had defeated Sodom and Gomorrah and captured Lot. Like he had guys, right? He could have he could have resisted there and he was unwilling to, right? So there's this there's this great bravery and cowardice. So what are we gonna do? Say, oh, there's nothing to learn from Abraham because he did some bad stuff or he failed? No. We need to remember the good stuff that was done. We need to be willing to acknowledge the bad things so that we, you know, don't, you know, we don't advance them. We don't wrongly call it good, but we emphasize the gains and we pass on the gains. That's right. That's right. So the office of the church is part of, I would say that the, the um, idea of the church, let's talk about what is the church? What does it actually do in this civic covenanting thing? I think part of it is the, the protection aspect of it. Would you say that? And and, yes. and 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 why it's important? Because I think everybody is comfortable only with really one government, which is a civil government, and we're not used to this idea of the church being a real government. Right. What, what we want to see. So first of all, what is the church? You asked what the church is, and yeah. how does it relate to the civil government? So what is the church? Okay. Well, there's the invisible church, which is all of the elect, right? All those who have believed, do believe now, or ever will believe. Well, we're not talking about that. The, the elect is not what's being talked about right now. We're talking about the visible church. And the visible church is all those who profess the true religion and their children. All right, so all those who profess the true religion and their children. And that group, um, the those who profess the true religion, the households that are that are underneath a, a professing um, master or mistress of the home. Yeah. And... 
And so you you see this idea of the household being holy. Hey, David, can I just and, I, I, before because you I, I don't want this to slide because people are going to say when you said, hey, and their children, let's just say and their non-believing wives. So if you have a wife who is underneath the head of her husband, as it should be, she represents in one sense or another, just in the same way Rahab did, she saved her whole house. Right. Because she made covenant. She's like, no, this house belongs with those people. That's who we went. And God was gracious in one way or another to allow them to be a part because of the representation that she was. And we forget that sometimes, um, you know, the, the, those people who uh, have allegiance to God can, in one sense or another, represent their homes. Do you agree with, on that or are we different on that? No, absolutely. So yeah. you, you have the whole, you know, first Corinthians seven talks yeah. about the idea of the wife and the husband being holy. And it talks about the children being holy. And frankly, you could add, you know, household servants being holy as well. And that's plainly laid out in, in, in Genesis 17. So, um, <laughs> Darren Steele said, Presbyterian is always trying to bring their kids to everything. Hey, didn't Noah bring his kids on the ark? I'm just saying, Darren, I'm just saying. Suffer the little children to come unto me, bro. All right, you were saying. Of such are the kingdom of God, which is generally oh, oh. the phrase used, which is generally the phrase used for the visible church. Um, <laughs> so so this, this idea of the... Um, <laughs> sorry, was, Darren's comment. Yeah, Darren's <laughs> comment got me. <laughs> he's a good dude. I love Darren. He's so close. Dude, if we sprinkled him with water, he's turning Presbyterian. I'm telling you, he's so close. <laughs> He's just been immersed too many times. He's probably scared of his Baptist friends. Anyway. <laughs> so the, the, visi the visible church. Yeah. The, the visible church uh, are all those who profess the true religion um, and their children. And the idea is that, yeah, that it's, the it's the household is made holy. And any anybody who's in the house who either makes profession or is, you know, not resisting baptism, they should be baptized. Yeah. And so... Um, so this idea, anyway, so you, so you go, the visible church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Mm. That does not mean like Roman Catholics would say that it's the foundation. Okay. A pillar and ground are not the foundation. They are above the foundation. Um, they hold things up. What that means is they put them on display. Mm. So the foundation is the word of God. The foundation is the apostles and prophets and the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the revelatory officers and the revelation they gave. And so the church upholds the message. It's a teaching institution. It's proclaiming. And so it, it puts forth that message of the truth. And then you look at the idea of what the church is doing. What are the functions of it to do that? One, it teaches the true doctrine. It confesses that doctrine. It captures it in confessional documents. And it has that public preaching of the word. And then in its private ministries, it sends out persons to do stuff. So they have, there's this confession, there's public teaching, there's sending out public officers to teach, and then there's the members of the church teaching privately, hospitality, that kind of stuff. Then you have the worship of God, the public worship of God. So the church upholds the doctrine 
and then it has the worship of God according to the regulated principle. So just like our doctrine, we should not teach anything except what we can prove from the scriptures. It's explicit statements and necessary inferences. The worship of God should only be what we can prove from the scriptures by explicit statement or necessary inference. And the government of the church. And the government of the church is to maintain order and good teaching, and it is to maintain discipline and to make it so that you can capture for cases of conscience and for matters of dispute the clarity about what the scriptures teach. And so the government defends and upholds the worship and defends and upholds the doctrine, and it, the government has to be according to scripture alone. So only the authority and only the exercise of power that can be shown by explicit statement or necessary inference from scripture alone. And that's true for all three. And so that's the regulated principle of doctrine, worship, and government. Mm. And the idea that the, they have different names, right? We call it, when it's applied to doctrine, we call it sola scriptura. When it's applied to worship, we call it the regulated principle of worship or the reformed view of the second commandment. And when we apply it to the to the church government, it's called just divinum or just divinum, this idea of the divine right or the divine rule, divine justice, the order in the church that has come from Christ's appointment. And so... We carefully guard all of them, and that's what the church does. That's what its function is. Those are the public elements of authority, and a part of what it does when it's government is it pulls in money, mm. and that money is brought in by the tithe or it's brought in by offerings that are free will offerings, and there's only three legitimate purposes in the government for the spending of money in the church. One, to pay officers for their work. Two, to pay for the maintenance, not the maintenance, sorry, to pay for the ministry itself. So you got to have, you know, bread to eat, wine to drink, water to pour on people's heads, a place to meet, right? It's the basic functioning of that. You got documents you're writing, Bibles you're printing, Psalters to print, stuff you need for the worship of God and for that functioning of the thing. You know, it's the, you, know, you, you pay Paul to do the work and you give him swords to fight with, right? A soldier is paid and a soldier is equipped. And so that's the idea there. You have the pay for that, and you have the stuff you need to fight. And then there's the mercy ministry, the mercy ministry, giving in the name of Jesus. So those are the three functions of the money, and that's what the government does of the church. And so you think about this, doctrine, worship, government, and the government can only do three things with the money. And so you've got this very limited set of activities that the mm. church can do. That's the government that's been given to the church. And so how does that relate to national covenanting? Well, the church is going to exercise the keys for discipline. It teaches the word, and it kicks people out, and it lets people in. And that calls blessing and cursing. Mm. The state has a duty to defend the church from being harassed, and it has a duty to defend it against attack and, and you know, slander that's, you know, criminal slander and all that. But, you know, the, you know a libertarian can agree with that. The, you know, the, the person who doesn't believe that the state is supposed to punish it is going to blaspheme But let me tell you what, what we see over and over again in the scriptures is the principle that the church needs to be recognized by the magistrate. It needs to be established and settled. It needs to be maintained. And that means what you see is the... In the beginning, when a, when a nation goes through Reformation, the state is supposed to make it so that there is a establishing of basic order. And there's this, the church is established as the state church, and there's going to be all sorts of lack. And the lack is a, a lack that has to be filled up so that there can be order to avoid a collapse into disorder. 
And but you don't have a long-term maintaining of the church by having the state constantly funding it. The church members need to fund the church. But there's this when the temple's been destroyed, the magistrate helps to rebuild it. Mm. And after that, then it's maintained. So Darren's um, back. He's back. The Baptist is back. And, you know, if we don't answer Baptist, they'll get really weird and say that we're trying to stone him or trying to drown him again. And so, you know, we should probably respond to Darren. Darren Stead, good friend, I think, says, OK, so I have an honest question here. I'm compelled by what David is saying, as you should be. Where does liberty of conscience fit in? OK, so. David doesn't believe in liberty of conscience. All right, moving on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's a Presbyterian of, people. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So liberty of conscience. Okay, liberty of conscience. Westminster Confession. You look at uh, chapter twenty. Is liberty uh, on liberty of conscience, and what it has is this idea of of, li- of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. That's that's the title. So the idea, Christian liberty is liberty to do what God commands. Preach, preacher. I'm sorry, it just came out. <laughs> it's, it's called Augustinian liberty, the ability to do what's right. Amen. Okay. So, so it's wrong for the state to ever outlaw anything righteous. Amen. And, Amen. And so that's what Christian liberty is. And uh, when we talk about civil liberty and we want to have a civil liberty that doesn't have any sort of... Um, you know, blasphemy laws or whatever, that's not Christian liberty of conscience. That is a, you know, that's an antinomian, that's lawless, right. unbiblical liberty. That's not liberty, that's license. And and so liberty is about the ability to do what's right, the ability to do what the law order gives us authorization to do. Um, so Christian liberty is that. Liberty of conscience is that you never force somebody um, to do something that's sin, and you never, um, you never forbid somebody from doing something uh, that is right. And God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. The state and the church both have an obligation to prove from the word of God that something is either criminal or sinful. The church punishes people for sin when they're unrepentant by using the keys. And they can only punish those things that are actually demonstrable as sin. And the state can only punish not all sin, but only crimes, which is a subset of sin. And we know the difference between a crime and a sin because the Bible gives civil penalties. It gives coercive action to be performed by the state in punishment. And so if there is not a punishment attached, then it is not a crime. And so we differentiate between sin and crime in that way. And so Liberty of conscience, we are, man is free from the doctrines and commandments of men. If, you, if, if some state tells you don't preach the gospel, you laugh in their face and you say, I'm going to obey God and not man. And, that, and you have the conscience of a free man, and you feel great about it, and then you suffer for righteousness sake. And the state is wrong for breaking that. God will bring judgment on them. They will, he will destroy them, or he will bring them to repentance. And so liberty of conscience is the freedom of you as an individual to do what's right. The other thing is, also, the other thing is, what you find is that the, um, man, so I come up. I, just, I, I, know, I know, I saw I come up. Go ahead, go to the other thing if you so want to. I, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, I've lost it. Forgive okay. me. I, I got to get better at this. <laughs> no, you're doing great. Um, so Darren then is asking, uh, Darren, you got the doggone link, bro. 
Like, if you want to come, you know, I'm not doing this with you, Darren. If you want to come in here, you know, and show your mug, you know, we know how you feel about it, and you want us to laugh at you, you can click the link, you come in here, we'll bring you in. No, you know, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. No, but so that, that, but I was going to ask the same question then. So then does, does not baptizing your child fall underneath the liberty of, of conscience? Okay, so, so oh, here's the other thing I was going to say, and this relates to this, and then I'll go into the baptism thing. Yeah. And he also asked about servants, so I, I got to answer that too. Oh, he so, did? Oh, I didn't see that part. So... So, okay, so so for, first thing is, one of the other things is Christianity does not compel people to worship God properly. Mm. It forbids idolatry. It requires by the moral law, the performance of right worship. Church discipline can be imposed on those who do not worship God properly. You do not compel church attendance, and you do not compel baptism with a sword. Mm, come on now. So you better preach. Do you need to say anything else, or can we move on? I gotta prove this because this sounds this sounds super convenient, you right? Just it's just like, oh great. It. Yeah. Yeah. So so Darren, first of all, yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to mess you up. Darren, Darren just said, I just want to point out, you know, he said that's good. That helps. Thank you. Which means okay, he's not so, coming on here. Hey, bro, stop acting like Owen. That's all I'm saying. So so then here's the next thing. So the so Abraham was told to circumcise his children and the servants that were born into his house but not his wage-earning servants, okay? Mm. And so you differentiate between those that are household servants as opposed to wage employees. Oh, that's good. That's really good, David. Okay, okay so, keep going. So, so that's, why you don't, that's why you don't just baptize hourly employees, right? So like you come work at Armored Republic, and I'm not just going to like hose you down when you walk through the door. And yeah. so that being the case, there's a difference. And so what we see is there's then... With the obligation, what's supposed to happen to those who don't get circumcised? It says for those who don't get circumcised, they're supposed to be cast out. Now, a lot of people like to pretend that when the Bible says in the Old Testament, cast out, that that means to execute or something. Here's why they read it that way. Because they don't understand that the Bible very plainly has a separation of church and state in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament has a church and a state, and you can be kicked out of the church. You can no longer be in good standing in the church. You could be cast out of the synagogue. You can be revoked from being able to appear in the in the temple, except for the court of the Gentiles, that kind of thing. You could be excommunicated, and you're still a part of the state, and you're still able to go around, and none of your freedoms are taken away by the civil magistrate. That's really good stuff. I was just telling somebody about this. This is good. Go ahead. So if you won't baptize your children, you should be excommunicated. And... If you, but the state should do nothing except insofar as if we have a civil covenant and all of our officers of state are civil covenant, um, people who have entered into the civil covenant, then if you, if you lose your good standing in the established religion, you should also be removed from state office. So it's about the loss of, of privileges to exercise power in the civil government. That's what the loss of good standing in the church but that, does, but, but there's that, no criminal penalty. There's no criminal, there's no loss of citizenship then either though, right? Right. Okay. Just, okay. I wanted to work that one out. Okay. So here's, here's, you've said it probably better than I had. There's, there is a point, um, uh, I just saw it pop up and, uh, I just had to say it too. Uh, one in the trillion said weapons already there. He just wants, he just won't act because of fear of James White. Everybody's afraid of James White. So that's, I don't blame him too hard on that. One thing I think people have to recognize... I want to debate James White on baptism. I've been trying to get him to debate me on baptism. Sorry. <laughs> well, Doc, let's do it. Um, but there, there is a... Uh, people... 
all know that there is some sort of conscience that runs inside of every nation. Every nation has a has a cult that goes with it, right? And when we rem- when we remove the church from being what the church is, we don't get a ch- chance to deal with the crimes that are, uh, or should I say, the sins that manifest themselves in the mind. The church, without the church, we don't have a protection against sins before they manifest themselves in the in the public sphere. And the church is a, the church and the family are huge in making because there's the only two governments that actually get a chance to patrol the mind. Uh, oh, <laughs> Darren's popped up because I called him Owen. He's mad at me now. I can't let him in because he's going to curse me out in Jesus name. Uh, you can't do that. That's wrong to do, Darren. But uh, but but when we have given up the authority uh, of the church to function as a real government in civic society, a, a real government in, in, in our society, then we remove the ability to get our hands on envy and lust and uh, covetousness that hasn't manifested itself in stealing and destroying somebody else's goods. The church gets to handle that. So it makes the normal common society better because they're dealing with those things before they ever start manifesting themselves through the growth of that sin. They get to deal with sin before it manifests itself to a crime. And so when we have taken uh, the church out of the context of being the cult of the culture, Something else is going to disciple the minds of the people on what's right and wrong. And you can't escape that. That's an inescapable reality. And so we have to be mindful of what we're talking about and, and, and how all this fits together because people have thought the church is just to grab folks and get up out of here. But if you believe that the church is going to grab folks and get up out of here, then you missed the original creation mandate to work and to guard. This is part of the guarding aspect of the church of creation is to remind men what they can't and can't do with it. This is what John the Baptist told, um, who was it? Uh, when he told uh, the leader, you can't have her. You Herod. Can't, Herod. He, you can't have her, Herod. That's what you're supposed to do, right? And he was wrong as a, as a leader. He should have said, you're right. I'm wrong. I need to not do this. And he should have repented. But it doesn't mean you stop just because you might get your head rolled. If, if anything, now you continue to do it because God will bring judgment on them as he did. Okay, I'm saying too much. Right. So— well, that's great. So let's talk about oh, real quick. I want to bring Darren in here now since he popped in here. I'm sorry, man. I wasn't trying to call you out like, you know, I, like that. That's the only reason I'm here, man. Okay. That's the only reason I'm here is because you said I was like Owen if I didn't come. So Well, I, I wish that worked for Owen, but I don't know who to call I, Owen to get him to clothes. go. I put on my Doug Wilson hat so that we just clear, you know. No, I, the only thing I wanted to add, uh, I enjoyed the, I'm enjoying the conversation. The reason that I asked the question um the reason I think the question needs to be asked, and there are people that are asking it, and there are people that are answering it. So I'm not behaving as though I'm the first person to ask this no, question. That's true. But in the time, like when you when we appeal to the Westminster Confession regarding liberty of conscience, which I love the Westminster Confession. I think it's a solid— You better. 90% right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I like the corrected version called the London Baptist Confession, but that's a separate discussion. But—, but um, there is this reality that in the history of Christendom, there have been times, and Dr. White brings this up, where baptism was not baptizing your children was seen as both a sin and a crime, or preaching without a license was seen as both a sin and a crime. And we we need to, like, I think it would be helpful to have some writing or some discussion on that topic. Go ahead, brother. You, you want to, wouldn't it be nice if Joel Osteen was licensed? I'm just saying, <laughs> or not. I'm just saying. 
I'm just saying, you know, uh, J.D. Greer, I wish somebody would have checked him. I'm just saying. I, you know, I go agree. ahead. I just, <laughs> I just, but I don't know if the church, I don't know if the state is in the best position. Oh, no, I mean, no, no, so no, 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 no. When you, when, the, the concern is like, if you, if, if, like, I'm, I'm following everything you're saying, David, and I'm enjoying the discussion because you're talking about things that I'm not hearing everybody talk about as you're digging deep into this. The idea of losing, like, if you're disciplined, if the, if, I believe that Christianity should be the cult of the culture. That yeah, concept yeah. I agree with. I think we all should agree with that. Um, that is just a basic Christian idea. There's differences of opinion about how to get there, but I think we all should agree. If you look at like the English Reformed Baptists versus the, you know, versus, you know, maybe like some more of the Puritans or so forth, there was still agreement that the Christian faith should be the cult of the culture. We should all agree with that. Anybody who's arguing against that on the basis of history, I don't know what history they're appealing to, but there are aspects that need to be sorted out because like I may like if I'm in a Presbyterian church, right? I believe that to baptize your babies is a sin, right? A Presbyterian would believe that to not baptize your babies is a sin. We should all be honest about that. Yeah, and then there are the folks in the CREC and, and others who say, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but we're going to allow some grace and, and so forth. But as a general rule, there's this agreement. We believe in the Reformed Baptists believe in the regular principle. Presbyterians believe in the regular principle. And what that means is if you don't do what the scripture requires, you're sinning. So if you don't baptize your baby. Well, and, and, and if you add to it, it's sin, right? And that's what you think we're doing. You think yeah, we're committing right. idolatry, right? Absolutely. Both ways there. Yeah. So, so doesn't if, that mean we're committing a crime? That's the question. Well, and if it means we're committing a crime, that's one discussion point. And also the other discussion point is if the removal, if being removed from the church constitutes a loss of status in society, that's something we need to investigate more. Like how we're going to deal with these issues where there's not broad agreement among evangelicals. You know, how do you work through all of that in a practical, in a practical, like taking your th ideas, uh, David, I don't think you, I don't know if you and I have ever met, but I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to your discussion today. Um, taking your ideas you've been talking about here and applying them to where we're at as a society right now. I'm just trying to think through these aspects of that as you're talking through this. And can I, uh, uh, Knox, can I talk to Darren about this for just a second? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, just so take Darren. my show over. I don't, I don't even need to be here. Matter of fact, here's what I'm, y'all let me know when y'all done. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> what have I done? My okay. head here now. I don't I don't know if I like this. I don't <laughs> Okay, so Darren, real fast. Think about this for just a second. From the from the Presbyterian position, we've got a text about circumcision that says if a person doesn't circumcise their child, then they should be cast out. So that becomes the basis for action if and you understand the argument. I'm saying that circumcision yeah, yeah. is replaced by baptism. And yeah. I know that you disagree with something about the logic sure. of what I'm playing. Yeah. I get it. Okay. Right. So, so if the logic holds, you'd see how that's the basis of this needs to be excommunicated. Sure. Agreed. On this side, on your side, if you think that there need to be civil penalties for idolatry, which I imagine you hold to. I do. Okay. Then baptizing babies has to be viewed as a thing that's criminally punishable. So you would say that baptizing babies, <laughs> you would say that baptizing babies would be, you, you, I would not say baptizing babies is idolatry. I don't think that you're worshiping a different God when you baptize babies. The second commandment is not about what God you worship. The first commandment is about what God you worship. The second commandment is about how you worship him, 
right? This is your God, O Israel. This is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now that's the golden cow, right? The golden cow was, was, a, was a representation of Yahweh. And the problem was that it was an image of Yahweh, and he had not given us an image to worship, right? Really? And then, and yeah. so, so, the, so the second commandment is not about which God, it's about how you worship. So if I worship the true God of the Bible and I invent worship to do it with, then that's idolatry. That's punishable. It's criminal idolatry. So question for you on that then. I see what you're thinking, like thinking covenantally about the law, the summary of the law and the second commandment and how that's extrapolated out in the rest of the law. Are there, do you believe that there are any tertiary matters when it comes to the worship of God on the Lord's day, or are they all primary or even secondary, or are they all primary? In other words, if we don't do if we're not following through on everything that what I'm thinking the church ought to look like here, my understanding of the, the, the regular principle, there's no secondary or tertiary matters. We're in idolatry. Is this a good time to let everybody know so, that David is a Puritan of Puritans? <laughs> Maybe we should just let everybody know that, that like if there's a Puritan that exists on planet Earth, they look up to David. So he's Puritan of Puritans. Just throwing that out there. I love that. That's awesome. I love the so Puritans I'll, mostly. <laughs> I'll, I'll answer that question when I have a definition of what primary, secondary, third, you know, tertiary, whatever, uh, when I have what those are. So if what we mean is is primary like salvation issues, then like you can go worship Satan and you can still be saved. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. So so I think we should do more than punish primary issues. What well, no. since justification? Since okay. I say, I mean, fair enough. So yeah. so, so if, by, if if by primary issues we mean like what public worship can officers impose yes. on their congregation? Yeah. Like if a church, if a church is requiring you to do worship that God has not appointed, you need to publicly object to that and go through Matthew 18 conflict resolution process and take it to the court of that church. And if they will mm -hmm. not repent of imposing the idolatry after going through a careful process of discussing what the scriptures teach, that is something that requires separation. So, so first of all, I would say, so you're not in agreement with the brothers and sisters in the CREC, I can tell from this conversation, uh, with regard to this issue then. Would that be correct? I am not. I'm not um, that's not a gotcha question because of the show that we're on. I'm just trying to parse out. Didn't I, David, didn't I say he's here. a Puritan? A Puritan? Yeah, right. <laughs> But uh, you're you're lucky to be alive right now, boy. Yeah, right. Yes, <laughs> around me. Yes, I just me. I'm in Indiana. So, I, I got you, know. you bro. He, 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 <laughs> I'm just messing. There's no theonomic basis to drown you. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but so so but, but that whole thing. What is a valid church versus what you should do? We we all want to make this about like, are you saying I'm not saved? And it's like, no, no. I'm not concerned with that. I'm concerned with. You got okay, so you have Presbyterian Church, and across the street you have a Baptist church. They're both, well, I would say the Baptist Church is a Reformed church. You probably would say it's not a Reformed church, but let's say it's a it depends Reformed, on the definition of Reformed, right? Let's say it's a Reformed Baptist church. It's a covenantal church. It holds sixteen eighty nine confession. Across the street you have a Presbyterian church. It's a genuine Westminster holding, not PCUSA. It's a, a genuine Reformed. Presbyterian PCUSA in the church. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry, not P not PCUSA. PCA, you know, or whatever. Pick one. Whichever one you like. Go with that. All right. We have these two churches. They're across the street from each other. Okay. In a in the society that you're drawing, the the you're painting your picture for what this society, this Christian society is going to look like. In that society, the thing that I'm concerned about is not 
if the people in church A and church B are saved, that's irrelevant to the conversation that we're having right now from my perspective. The question is, can the people that are in church A and church B maintain status in civil society despite their disagreements on these important principles? And and I and I Knox, thank you for giving me a bunch of time to go over this stuff. And so I'll I'll answer this and then take us where you back. Where we do. No, no, Darren, thank you. And, and David, thank you. I don't for mind. This, I love I love this. I wish people. I wish more people were like Darren. I wish more people would engage with us like this because these are actual conversations we really yeah. need to have. We really need to have yeah. and work out. And since I'm post millennial, I know that we're going to have plenty of time to figure it out. Anyway, go ahead. All right. I agree with that. So, Darren, if by civil status you mean, okay, so. Does property get taken away? No. Are there civil penalties? No. Do you potentially lose your ability to vote, engage in military service, or enter public office? Yes. Yeah, I think that's actually – that's where we disagree. And that, uh, the whole thing I was trying to file down to is I'm okay with having that disagreement with you, but I think we should argue about that. Yeah. Yes. I think you're making a lot of good points. There's a lot that you've said that I agree with. But this this point is a point on which I would disagree. I would say that I believe I agree with you that when you're talking about Christianity being the cultic religion or the cult, the cult of the culture, I agree with that. But I think you and I mean two different things when I say that. I think when you say that you mean a Presbyterian form of Christianity that you have to maintain some form of a, at least a covenantal, a reformed covenantal view, Westminster covenantal view of Presbyterian Christianity for your system, carrying your system through. And I would not agree with that. I think that there should be broader parameters than that for establishing that society. And this, this right here, the reason I'm asking these questions is this right here is the argument that I think should be had. That's not happening. Like yeah, I don't see the argument, but you yeah. know what though, but, but Darren, we can't even talk through Stephen Wolf's conversation, let alone this one, right? Like, I don't, I don't think, you know, we can't even, my goodness, we can't barely represent, at least what I saw here is everybody's representing their position. Say, okay, here's our positions. How do we work through that? I, I, I'll say this, and then David, you can respond to, to it, and then we can move on. But I think I would love to have this conversation more. I think this is an interesting conversation to me, and I haven't actually completely got it worked all the way out. But right now, I think that, if we can just get Baptist to get closer towards uh, where you are, Darren, and see how their idea of this plays out over the next 150 years, I think they might be closer to, to David before it's all said and done. Because there's going to be some interesting compromises as you start looking at people who believe in the charismatic gifts start to run their way through the governments. And you guys over here are saying, wait a second. What do you mean God told you that we shouldn't be doing this, that, or the other thing? Because right now, the sensationist and non-sensation debate is so crazy yeah, that you, you mean to tell me that you're going to let that guy? You you want you want to – what is your standard by which you should say he should not be in the civil match? You're going to have – these are things that haven't been worked through. And at least um, – I think me and – I don't know how close me and David are actually on this because we've talked about it a little bit. To me, I hear David, and I'm like, man, that seems very harsh. Be, but I, I also know that I've been taught very soft, <laughs> right? And so I, I agree with that. And so my position, yeah. so I'm open to have this conversation yeah. because I'm trying to figure out, um, and, and I think we have time to convert all these Baptists to Presbyterians too. Anyway, there's so much more I can say on that. And I, and I think, and I think, and, da and Darren, you can, you can vouch for this. I think when I saw COVID happen, when the Baptistic 
uh, public theology fell through, everybody became a theonomist and they had to figure out how to separate it from postmillennialism and Presbyterianism. Right. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that big time. And so I, I think mean, if we get enough trouble happening, everybody's yeah. going to be singing a different tune. Everybody. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah. you know, so I, I just think when trouble comes, something's going to be leveled up. All right, Darren. And then uh, David, you have the last word. Yeah, I would just I've not really made my positive. I've not. I'm just sort of been I don't think it's fair for me to come in here and offer a critique of David and then not say not articulate my position. Um, and my my standard would be Trinitarian baptism. That would be my standard. Like in order for a person to be involved in civil society, my standard would be Trinitarian baptism. And I think that's a good standard. Like I think that's where the line needs to be held at. And so Knox, to your point, like well, what do we do with the charismatics and stuff like that? Man, that's going to be messy. That's stuff that we have to figure out. It's but all messy. I think I can make a biblical case for why Trinitarian baptism should be the standard. But I also am wide open to hearing David's argument for why he thinks – I'm like a ping pong ball because I kind of go back and forth. But like I can see th- there's going to have to be a marker somewhere, and yeah. I think I, I think when we're I think when we're talking, <sighs> yeah, when we're talking about civil environment, that's completely different in one sense. Like yeah. there has, yeah, you know, yeah. Anyway, David, I'll give you the last word, and then I want to move on. Yes, sir. So, in short, if we believe that there is a maturing of the church that accrues across history. Everybody's going to be Presbyterian. Yes. I, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. The, then, then the covenant, the, then the covenanted standard, the confession of the church will advance over time. Yeah. And, and I think we're all going to look at this. We're going to go, Hey, you know, Nicaea and Chalcedon were a whole lot inferior to what we see coming out of the reformation. And you know, that, 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 you know, 1600 years, sorry, that, that 1,100 years, that 1,200-year period of time going from Nicaea and Chalcedon into Reformation confessional documents is a clear representation of the maturing of the church that's been accomplished across that time. And so the state, if you look at—if we're trying to actually be biblical and not just do stuff that we want or that's convenient or that gets us a large enough coalition to be able to happen to win an election or whatever, and we go, what's the biblical order that the state is supposed to have? It's supposed to acknowledge the national covenant, and then it's supposed to deal with people in terms of soldiers, voting, and civil officers according to the national covenant. And so the church is going to mature. That covenant is going to become more and more complex, Mm. and it's going to have more and more details. And so that's the process of maturing that occurs. So today, we've got a far more mature church than we had 1,000 years ago or 1,500 years ago, and and so we're going to have a different thing there. And so we, we have to have some basis, and, and excommunication out of the church is how you determine who's got a credible, you know, if somebody doesn't have a credible profession of faith, then their baptism doesn't matter anymore. Like, if they've been excommunicated, that doesn't matter. So which churches do we recognize in terms of whether or not we're going to accept them as having a credible profession of faith for civil office? And so if we don't want to have a credible profession of faith for civil office as a standard, okay, fine, we don't have a religious test anymore. We either have a religious test where we're saying this person who wants to enter public office has a credible basis for for believing their profession, or we don't. And if we don't, then all we're doing is we're just letting people who there's no evidence that they're qualified in. I think Exodus 18.21 provides us with standards for judging magistrates, and the fear of the Lord is one of them. And if they don't uphold the confessed religion, then they don't have the fear of the Lord, 
evidenced in their life. So, so, so David, could you have, you know, I think we're all here in America, so that's one thing, but you could have technically the way you're talking about it, a Baptist state, right? A nation where a nation is Baptistic. And so then it would have this, your whole perspective would apply then to that with Presbyterians too, that if they're baptizing their kids, they wouldn't necessarily be allowed to hold office. That would be a one way of looking at this as well. Well, yeah, I mean, let's be real here. Overwhelmingly in America, the saved people in this country are Baptist. Right. Okay. So like there's way more saved people that are Baptist than Presbyterian. Yeah. And and so that being the case, like if we establish a Christian government, like— We're in trouble. Right. I, I, right. <laughs> we're, 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 we're in trouble. trouble. Wait, right. So right. I'm, just, I'm just trusting the Lord here, right? We're just gonna, like, let's do the well, thing. I'm working out, bro. I'm getting ready. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So what we need to do is we need to form civil covenants, and in, inside of that, we need to work out the details of seeking to reach Reformation heights mm. and going beyond that. But but I think what we, we, we do mm. is we, t- we, we find where we are, and we build from there. Nehemiah and Ezra give examples of Reformation that you know is trying to catch back up to where the covenant had been. And mm. so I think there's a lot to talk about there in terms of the progress. I'm talking about the ideal. What's the ideal that should be established? Yeah. And you got to believe in a Baptist state, and I got to believe in a Presbyterian state. But we are right now in the middle of like hellhole secularism, and so we got to figure out how to get out of that, and we got to organize and figure out how to covenant together in terms of then having a context for resolving conflict and talking through things to see ourselves advanced in that. But the, one of the problems historically you got to deal with as a Baptist is you do not have any courts of appeal for the church to deal with anything beyond the local church level. And if you look at the history of what happened in Massachusetts Bay Colony with a Congregationalist form of government, they had baby baptism. Baby baptism doesn't solve that problem. The yeah. problem is you don't have any church courts. And so the magistrate has no way of interacting with the church in a unified way. The church courts beyond the local church do not exist. And so if you don't have presbyteries or synods to interact with the magistrate in terms of the level of government that you're interacting at, you're not going to have a way of having a shared answer between the church and the state. I, um, I grant that. I think that's a good point. I think that would be a weakness in a, in a Baptistic state. I think that would be a weakness. Um, you know, the same, I think it's a strength. Um, you know, I've said this before, although my friend corrected me on it the other day, so I need to think through it a little bit more, but I think classical liberalism tends to be a Baptistic heresy. Um, so when people say, what, what, what do we, uh, at least it's easily it's more easily embraced by Baptists, and so people say, well, what would what would a Baptistic government look like ultimately in the end? And, and in a certain sense, it's like, well, what do we have right now? That's a lot. This is this Darren, is what we have in our society right now. Be, you can't be coming on here saying stuff like that, bro. I'm just you know I know you I'm going to end up getting Chris Farley or uh, Jason Farley. Yeah, Jason don't. Farley. Don't yeah. don't come on I here. I did not say Baptists are responsible for transgenderism. Well, the classical liberal yeah. system that everybody's talking about is collapsing is like the heresy of the bro. I, I, I disavow Darren Stead. I disavow everything he's ever said. I never liked him. I never right. Darren Stead doesn't like black people. That's all I know. Uh, <laughs> I just said I'm a classical liberal. <laughs> no. uh, I, just, I don't want it. I don't want to smoke people. Yeah. The meme lords are winding up. Here hey. come, man. <laughs> My face is going to be all over Twitter in a little while. Here, man. Hey, the brother. good news is those guys can't meme very well, so I'm not really that worried about it. <laughs> I don't true. make very good memes. So. Hey, brother, appreciate you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. brother. Thanks anytime, for having me on. Anytime. All right. Hey, I love that, dude. And you know what? I love something else. I, 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 I really believe people should invite you on David to talk about this more because you said something that I thought was really, really, really important. Why do we act like 
that we can't come together as brothers and reason with the word of God and come to conclusion. That's another violation of the fifth commandment that we are break. Our forefathers have done this. This nation mm-hmm. is built off of that reality of people having differing positions and figuring out how to work together to get further down the road. Sure, it might crash, but then the people who are the children of those people, they take it and say, what are our forefathers missing at? And how do we honor them with what they did know and put it back together and make something better and move it back down for the glory of God, right? And that's, that's man, we need to be thinking like that instead of, you know what? I don't like his idea. I'm going to try and silence him, and I'm not going to platform him. Shut up. Stop that. Like, work with the ideas. And if they're bad ideas, reason it from Scripture. Why are they bad at? And then move on and figure out, okay, now that we know the bread of impact, how do, how do we figure it out? Have, have a, how have our forefathers figured it out? And how do we move on? Okay, David, I don't have you for very much longer. So I, I, we, we were supposed to get to the officers of the church and their wives. Um, okay. That was a good detour. Um, do you still, are you still wanting to go down there? Do you have anything else you want to, to move on? Because I know sometimes you can get inspired by parts of the conversation and move the conversation. <laughs> so we, I'm, I'm willing to do that, but I I'm, I'm kind of want to hit some of this other stuff too. So tell me what you want to do. So I'm sorry. Which other stuff are you wanting to hit on? I mean, I, I can go where you want to go. I, I happy, I'm happy to try to run through some of these things and give some of the key points here that I think would be helpful for people. Yeah, because I think let's do that because we need to connect the family and that government to the officers of the church and yeah. that government. And then um, because when you say the officers of the church, I think everybody can understand that. But then you threw their wives in here. Right. And how is um and I could be thinking about this wrongly, but it still has that kind of Adam Eve feel, but moved mm-hmm. into this this the 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 government of the church. Right. So okay, so you think about so the individual is commanded to work and keep, right? Like what you were saying, David Bonson told you, man was made to work. Okay, right. He's made to work, and he's made to work as a prophet priest king. And so the positive and negative, you know, in terms of, of when we think about the tools that are given for self-government, remember the individual is positively given the word of God so that his, his mind would be governed by the word of God and negatively conscience helps him. The pain of conscience in terms of, of, of going against conscience is meant to call you back as a witness. So you have the word of God and the conscience is the negative pain causer. And with the household, you have the word of God being taught in the house and the negative pain causer is the rod, and that's only mm. you know, the, the 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 head the head of the house and the mistress of the house, the master and mistress of the house, the husband and wife, the 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 father mother. They have the power of the rod. The husband does not have the power of the rod over the wife. Uh, a man has no pr- power to to use the rod on himself, and he's one flesh with his wife. There's no power there for that. But the rod and the word. So the rod is the negative disciplining element. So you see children in their youth, you see somebody behaving foolishly under the household government. And the idea of the use of the rod and of the word in that context to help to shape things and there's detail management of life. And then what you have is in the church, you have the word and the keys. And so the pain of exclusion from the city of God, the pain of exclusion from the rational society that's discussing the word of God. There's a pain of loss of that special, that holy society. And that's what the keys do. And they also, there's curse when you get kicked out and you're handed over to Satan that he might scourge your flesh, that your soul may be saved, right? So there's, there's the, the keys powerfully and painfully discipline people. And then the state has the sword, right? The, the, the positive assertion of what's good and right is coming from the word of God, and that's captured in law. And so you have 
here is what's good, here is what should be done, here are criminal behaviors, we're going to punish them. Those should be coming from the Word of God, and the sword is the negative instrument that's used to punish and to restrain that. So and you I, cut off the worst offenders. So I, that? I want you to, to work out something for me, because a lot of people, particularly on the Christian nationalist side, um, there is, you know, I think for most theonomists, we have a very negative feel, for, a negative concept of the law, which is the law itself is not a positive thing. You don't, you're not seeking to say, if you don't do this, then you're punished, right? Um, but it is, you don't get to kill, you don't get to murder, you don't get to steal, right? There's, it's a negative to it. A lot of people now are feeling like Romans 13 also says there's a positive side for this because you punish wickedness and reward good. So what does rewarded of good look like underneath your perspective as you're talking about the side for the civil magistrate? Sure. So you, the, the magistrate should, should reward those who serve publicly well by giving them you know, goods and honor. People who particularly do things that are in public service that are excellent, like you know, think about a medal of honor, right? You give that to mm. somebody who's excellently served, right? Well, that should also have a cash award with it. Okay. Yeah. Give them honor and hand them a bag of money. Um, you know, somebody starts doing a mass shooting and somebody gets up and shoots that guy. Right. Like we should be handing that guy a bag of money and a medal, right? Mm. We need to be positively honoring people for doing public duties and for doing it well. If, if, if a civil servant is, you know, building a military base and he's able to do something that saves the government a ton of money, we should give that guy a reward, a bonus, like we would a, a you know an efficient employee inside of a private company, mm. right? So, so there's there's those things. The other thing is, the idea of of in the emergency of having to reestablish the church in the event of you know there's been decline, there's been collapse, there's a reformation that's happening. You have the idea of the maintaining and establishing of the church. There's a rewarding of the, of the true church there and the countenancing with honor. So you countenance what's good, you honor what's good, you praise what's good, you reward certain behaviors, and people who are civil servants who do well are honored. And so those are the kinds of things. So money for those types of things, but you don't want to be subsidizing stuff all the time. You don't want to be going around and expanding big government. Remember, the state is not allowed to have a tax rate that's even 10%. So you got to have very limited role of the government, and nine point nine 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 percent is the like we're in a war of survival type of tax rate. You know you can't justify having that all the time. You want to have a a low tax rate and a low government involvement and very limited activities of the government. And the government exists to punish crimes, to uphold contracts, and to deal with just defense and night watchman activity, and Aside from that, the state is praising some good stuff, and that's it. That's all it's doing. Right. That's good. All right, so then let's go back to the officers there in the church. So um, how, what, what, how do you get qualified as an—what's the kind of appraisal of a person that makes them qualified to be in the church uh, a minister of the gospel? What's, what's those qualifications? And, sure. And, so, and, and do those qualifications differ from that of a civil, somebody in civil magistrate? They, they do. So, so first of all, remember, we talked about the visible church early on. We were talking about the visible church is all those who profess the true religion and their children. And so we have the individuals and their households that are brought into the church. And so you have this idea of household government, household representation, the head of house that's a man, right? A Specifically a patriarch. 
is somebody who is able to interact in the government of the church. And so a head of house who is, he, he's considered a man in Israel. He's age 20 and older, hmm. and that becomes a voting member. So the voting members of the church are men of Israel who are 20 and older, who are communicate members in good standing. And those are the guys that vote. And the congregation, there in the church, there are three governments. There, there are three councils of government. There's the, there's the congregation, which is the heads of house. There's the diaconate, which is deacons and elders. And there's the session, which is just the elders. And so when we talk about officers, in a certain way, we can talk about all heads of house as being sort of the lowest ranking officer, the person who exercises public authority. We're told in 1 Corinthians that women are to remain silent in church, but we're told that men are able to speak. And so the idea that there is a voting and asking of questions and floor debate that is occurring in some cases for men in certain scenarios. And so when you have that, you have the exercise of authority by men in that way. And there are three things historically that men vote on in the local church. They elect officers, they can remove officers, and they can have the final vote before a person is excommunicated or removed from the roles of the church. And so that final vote. So the the, then the diaconal office is a different qualification set. A diaconal office, you see their qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the qualifications are essentially character and orthodoxy. They do not have to have the capacity to teach well. They have to confess the faith. They don't have to prove the faith. So they need to hold to the whole confessed faith, your covenanted uniformity, and they need to be able to do that in good conscience. And and an officer, when you get to deacon or elder, okay, that, that, that starts to differentiate them. The elder has to be able to prove, to defend, to rebuke those who contradict, and he has to be able to teach, to organize the information in a way that's understandable for other people. So he has to be able to prove it, and he has to be able to communicate it. And so you look at those two, and they both have you know, the idea that they're supposed to be the husband of one wife. And so we should walk through the individual things. That was part of my plan today, but this is the, this is the, you know, we're flying an SR-71 flying over the thing at a hundred thousand feet yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. So, so the, so you get to the, the officer's wife and she's essentially got a bunch of character qualifications and it says some translations will say she has to be faithful in all things, which is like the most useless qualification I've ever heard in my life. It's like faithful in all things. I've never met anybody that's faithful in all things. Nobody's faithful in all things. So only Jesus can be an officer's wife. And that sounds like it's contrary to what is allowed in the law. So you know, that being the case, that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about faithful in all things, the translation that's better is believing all things. Believing what? Believing the confessed faith. Right? It's believing the reformed religion. It's the same, the mystery of the religion that the deacons required to believe. So she's supposed to believe too. She's, she confesses in good conscience the whole faith that's been covenanted to be upheld. And so you have that requirement. And so she's, she's competent, useful. She's a good helpmeet. And she's got some character qualifications. And she, and she, she faithfully holds to the confessed faith. And so you, to have an officer, an officer needs to have a wife to do that. There are some exceptions, okay, but here's the general rule. So just, that's fine. You think, okay, it's really important to me that there are guys who are not married who can be church officers. That's fine. I'm going to get to that exception in a second. Just be mad at me for now. So in general, what needs to happen is a guy, if he's going to rule over men, he needs to have a wife. If you're a guy and you want to rule over other men and you're not married and you try to talk to them about what they should do with their lives, they're going to roll their eyes at you and be like, yeah, whatever. Like, go play video games, man. Like, 
this like idea that an unmarried man is going to govern and rule over a bunch of married guys is not going to play over well unless this guy is exceptional, like Paul or Jesus, <laughs> right? So, so when you look at those, like what's the deal there? Okay, generally speaking, the idea is this guy's mature. The scriptures have the category of a child in the faith, the young man in the faith, and the fathers of the faith. The idea of maturing, we're obligated to mature. Philippians 3 has this idea of, of, of being one of the mature. And then it talks about the idea that we should all be striving to reach the heights of maturity that the church will reach in Christ. But there's a point that the church is at right now, a level of maturity. And some men hit the level of maturity that the church is currently at. And then those men need to strive to advance the maturity of the corporate body of the church while also pulling other men up to be mature so they can help in that work of advancing the church. Now, mm. a man needs to be mature in order to govern as a church officer. And if you're single and you want to get married, if you're not called to singleness, which means like you're not a eunuch or you have like what appears to be essentially a supernatural level of self-control where you don't <laughs> want to get married and you're like, yeah, I would like to find a way to get martyred, please. Like, like if you're not there, okay, you're called to get married. And so if you're called to get married and you're not married, you need to get married. Once your house is in order and you're married and you've been married for at least a year, we're told in Deuteronomy that a man shouldn't go into public service. He shouldn't go to war. He shouldn't have any public business laid on him for the first year of his marriage. That includes putting a public office on that guy. Mm. And so that guy needs to show for a year that he is a one-woman man, that he's ruling his house well, and that his wife is a wife that meets the qualifications. So that's sort of the, the minimum there. So now, that's the general standard. Now, the guy who is like Paul, who was a widower and who was old, Right. And he's like, okay, I don't want to get remarried. I just want to go serve in dramatic ways that consume all of my time. Okay. That guy can be an officer. Jesus was young, but he was very well organized and he was able to say, I'm called to singleness. And he was willing to go die for the accomplishment of the mission. So he had that ability. So being called to singleness is a requirement if you want to be an officer in order to get become an officer before you're married. Jesus did and have so, a bride, though. I just want to say, like, he's, he's that's, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's right. That's right. So, so all that there. So, so the officer needs to be a mature guy who meets these qualifications. And the levels of officers are heads of house, the deacon, and the elder. And there's particularities to each of those. So, I just like yelled at you for thirty minutes. So, no, that's that's really good. So then, um, one of the things that I, before you go, because I know you got to run, and David, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I love every Friday we get a chance to have this conversation. And like like Darren said, who came on, I, I don't think that a lot of this conversation is happening where we're laying the foundation, the basics, so that we can have these uh, understanding of where each other is coming from. I don't know where I'm going to find this conversation at. So I'm grateful that you're having it. But in this. Is this a particular, because right now what I see inside of evangelicalism, a lot of people who don't understand this, and I don't mean reformed, I'm mean just evangelicalism, there is this grasp, this grasping happening like we saw in the garden where everybody's running to the civil magistrate, which we haven't talked about yet, by the way, and trying to accomplish the um, qualification, not just the qualification, the blessing of God over the nation by putting in the right leaders. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about that, 
But is it possible to skip any one of these and just go to the other one? And because it, it doesn't seem like it, like all the qualifications to be either in the church or in the civil magistrate, shoot, just even to be married has a certain qualification that happens before you're capable, right? Is there, can you skip any one of these or does this have to be a particular order all in place in order to be able to have blessing? So the short answer is you can do them in any order. And if God blesses it, it mm. will succeed. Mm. But the general way we're supposed to operate is going from the, the more basic to the less basic. And so what that means is you get your own life in order so that you are then able to lead a house well. Mm. Your house is in order, which makes it so your, your wife can support you as a Proverbs 31 woman while you seek to rule in the gates. And then you have resources and a competent chief lieutenant, your wife, and you are able to then from there seek to enter into public service in the church and in the state, either or, or both and. And that idea, so when, when you look at the reformations that occur in the scriptures, you know, one of them that occurs, it's obviously a top-down one, is the, the reformation of Josiah. Mm. And King Josiah gets in there and he just tears down the idols, tries to put things in place. And as soon as he dies, everything goes back to the way it was. And, and so when you have a top-down reformation, the risk of it collapsing is way higher. And you can have a reformation that's sort of top-down, and you can have a bottom-up reformation. But the reality is what we want to see is we want to see all the governments in good order and each of them can help each other and support each other. But unless the sovereign work of God regenerates men, sanctifies them powerfully, causes them to bear fruit, and to mutually use the governments to uphold each other in proper order, you're not going to see a stable rule of the righteous in the land. And so this desire, you know, we look at, you asked me earlier, are the qualifications of a civil magistrate and a church officer the same? They overlap in a number of ways, but Exodus 18, 21, you know, talks about you have to be a man, you have to be competent, you have to have kail or valor, uh, competence, ability. So he's man, able, he has to hate covetousness, he has to um, fear the Lord, and he has to be a man of truth. And so those are things that overlap with qualifications of office, of civil office, or of, of church office but they're not exactly the same. And so as we think about these, what we're thinking about is the interaction of these different public spheres, the church and the state, they have different authorities, they have different powers. And what we want to see is we want to see all of the public powers, uh, the church and the state working together. And we also want to see the private powers of individuals and households working together to glorify God and all of them honoring and upholding each other. But you know, think about this, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ and his small band of disciples dramatically went out and we saw the world being filled. We saw Jerusalem being filled with the knowledge of God. And so the church is just spreading out and it's reforming all over the place in lopsided ways. It's just to go over here, a king gets converted. Over here, a bunch of merchants get converted. You know, over here, merchants and kings get converted. <laughs> right. Okay, you know, great. Like, like, so the Reformation comes, however it comes. Everybody has to do their job in their place. And, and if we're trying to just like find a way to, to like run past all the hard work and try to get into like, hey, how do we just, you know, get to the end zone or whatever? Like, no, getting the, the magistracy doesn't solve all the problems. That's right. 
That's right. No, you don't have to stop. I'm just a man in you. See, this is the difference between you. I, you're so Presbyterian. I'm so charismatic that when you start talking, I'm like, hey, man, hey, man. You're like, oh, he must want to say something. I did. I said, hey, man, you can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, I, I, got, I do have to say this about you, David. You know, you have very sharp distinctives. And it's those sharp distinctives that I think I appreciate because I know where you stand at and I know where to have our conversations at. And so I appreciate those. And one of the things I'm finding right now is nobody wants to have those sharp distinctives in conversations. They think because I have them, therefore we can't get along, right? Because you have them, therefore I can't get along with you. And that's just, that's very effeminate, right? It's very <laughs> effeminate. No, bring your sharp distinctives and come on and let's have a beer and, and some smoke a cigar or a pipe, whatever. And let's talk like men for the glory yeah. of God. And I look, I am so after the glory of God. If I lose because I was wrong, well then so be it. Cause for the glory of God, I'm fine being wrong. I don't Amen. think I am, but for the glory of his namesake, I'll be wrong and I'll be happy to see what God does out of us having this conflict with each other. We can't come together and talk. How in the world are we going to judge angels? <laughs> yes. And, and here's the deal. You, you, know how I, you know how I developed a bunch of really sharp distinctives? By being shown I was wrong hundreds of uh, times. Uh, somebody like I have been. You. Yes, right. I have, I have been wrong about so many things so many times for so long. And like the process of coming to being a Puritan like I was raised in broader evangelicalism, okay? I want you to imagine the process of gradually going from broader evangelicalism to being a Puritan. Oof. How many how many times did somebody show me I'm an idiot? Right, right. And so I am so thankful for that, right? Like it just like you have this like somebody shows you a new truth that like had the love to like tell you and argue with you. It's just like you have a love for that person. Like just the willingness of men who are willing to argue with you is like – this guy took the risk of making it so that I would have blowback of anger on him. And he, he argued with me <laughs> yeah. to give me this precious truth. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. David, you pastor a church in Phoenix, Arizona, Puritan Reformed. What's the website? Uh, PuritanPHX.com. Okay. Go check out. There's You have sermons up there. I can't recommend them enough. Great sermons. If you're in Phoenix, go visit David. Um, and then you're also the president CEO of armor Republic, AR 500 armor.com, right. Or armor Republic. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Armored Republic.com. That's right. Go get you some body armor and bless this man. Cause you're going to need it. Uh, it's always a good thing to have is I like for our government to go and calculate, you know, how many people have guns? Yeah. Let's figure out how to talk to them. Uh, how many people have <laughs> body armor? Yeah. Let's figure out how to talk to them. I, I, I will. Uh, and sometimes those are det natural deterrents that we should have, multiple things of and and it's, it's just lets everybody know yeah this ain't gonna be the kind of situation that we thought it was <laughs> and these are a different kind of people these are a free people and so uh go get um some body armor there's plenty of other things there but um also go fo follow at real david reese r-e-e-c-e -E -E on x I didn't dead name it. Um, and I'm trying to get him to X more. Is that how you say it? X more, tweet more, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so next Friday, David, what are we talking about next Friday? Uh, next Friday, I think we need to continue down here and talk about the particular qualifications um, of the of these and talking about the the function of the church in terms of its process of reformation mm. and, in, and how it becomes a, a place where we can start to see the, the church should also be an instrument of forming civil covenant in terms of encouraging people to do that. 
And so this idea of the church and its influence, its prophetic influence into the public square, the church, uh, the church offices, their qualifications, hospitality, the public prophetic ministry, those things need to be drawn in. Mm, that's good. All right. So next week, uh, until then, get to work. Get to work. This is, um, you know, I, I, David, I've, I've decided that I'm, I'm going to do a lot less of arguing with people over post-millennialism and over theonomy in one sense. And I think if we can get men to get back to work and to remember that God, every morning that they wake up, God has given them this lovely, wonderful gift that has surprises riddled all through it. And if they can wake up with joy in their hearts to set, accept this gift from the Lord and say, oh, God, thank you. I can't wait to return it back to you at the end of the day better than the way that you gave me. If we can get that and rooted inside of men, our, our positions are going to inherently bring out that type of reality that they that they point to. You, It has to. I am so convinced of that. Amen. And so until next week, get to work. Don't wake up. And not take what God has given you with joy. And then don't go to bed without giving God something better than what he gave you this morning. Shame on you. Repent of that and go start doing amazing things for the kingdom of God and blessing other people. David, thank you so much for joining me, brother. Appreciate you. Thank you, brother. The Lord bless you. Yep.